When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Uh, we are once again in a silly, goofy mood on this Monday morning that we are recording. It's rainy. I had coffee. I maybe had too much coffee. <laughs> I'm, I'm tired. Yeah, I'm probably in the too much coffee camp. We are also using the audio studio at the office for the first time as the three of us. And technology is hard. Hilarities ensue. Uh, but the three of us actually had the pleasure of interviewing Ruth Ware live in person at the Cuyahoga County Public Library Parma Snow Branch as a part of her book tour. We had so much fun both engaging with Ruth, with all of the just like wonderful things she had to share about her new book, The It Girl, as well as chatting with the audience and letting them ask their questions. So today you are all getting a little bonus episode where you can hear that interview. CCPL is gracious and amazing as a host and they record for us. So we are super excited to share that with you today. Yay. And we don't often do interviews, all three of us. So this was extra fun in that it was all three of us and it was live yeah. on a stage, which mm -hmm. was an experience. Jill is a pro Jill and a pro. Joe and I were sweating <laughs> under those house lights, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and it was also warm in there. So we were also like, we were sweating it, but we were also sweating. We were also sweating. It's you or great muggy in July in Cleveland. But it was a great event and the audience was wonderful. They had a lot of really fun questions at the end of our conversation. So that's why that's why I love opening these sort of events to audience members, because if you show up for that sort of thing, you are a fan and you're going to have questions. Um, like outside the box of what we would think to ask. Yeah, I love the creativity of people that are just true readers of that author because again, you're right, the things that they want to ask could really cover any number of topics. Mm -hmm. And I know we largely talk about the new book and then a few other bits, but there were some really creative questions that people asked about anything. Anything really. Yeah. And Ruth was Ruth was a delight. She was so sweet and I love live also just for the energy it brings because mm -hmm. like like both Jill and Emma said certain energy they're there because they're fans and they really just genuinely want to know what this person has to say and the fact that they enjoyed the three of us as well yeah. is also a bonus. Yeah. And shout out to our library system. I, I always think it's so incredible. Like Ruth came all the way to Cleveland from the UK. Mm -hmm. And so when they bring these authors seemingly huge distances, I'm like, I, we have to go. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. this was cool that we got to have that conversation with her. And I'm so glad that the 
area turned out for she Ruth did. because Almost not just that, 400 people also there was that one person who asked a question who driven from Columbus right like several hours so there away. were definitely people from even outside of Cleveland who which came. I think is so cool so yeah. shout out to our library system here we are truly lucky that that is in our backyard and that we get to do stuff with them but what a fun combo. Yeah, absolutely a fun combo. And before we let you into it, we have to remind you to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you're thinking. We really do appreciate it. You can follow us on social. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. And then if you want to reach us via email, send in your 2022 Professional Book Nerds challenges, anything like that, you can send those to ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. With that, Let's get into this live interview with Ruth Ware. I'm Annette Jones. I'm the adult librarian at CCPL's Bruxville branch, and I welcome you to Cuyahoga County Public Library's event with Ruth Ware. Yay! <laughs> we have a very good-looking audience tonight. I love it. Tonight is a very special evening because Ruth will be joined on stage by the Professional Book Nerds, the hit podcast from our friends at Overdrive. So it'll be a great interview. Woo! And if you like ebooks and e audio, you know Overdrive. <laughs> if you would like to see our other great authors that will be appearing at CCPL, you can go ahead online and take a look at beyondthebookjacket.com. We list all our author events. Being a librarian for the past 29 years, I can tell you that the very best part of my job is connecting people to books. And when someone comes in and asks me for a great thriller, my first question is, have you read Ruth Ware? Well, a lot of the times, like you, they say, yes, she's my favorite. Um, but you know, sometimes they haven't heard of her before. But I know all of you are waiting with bated breath for the It Girl, and you're going to get to start reading it tonight when you get home. Uh, there are lots of ways to enjoy Ruth's books. I generally read them on my Kindle, but you can listen to them on audio. Uh, if you haven't listened to them on audio, I highly recommend you do, because you're really missing out if you haven't. How many people have heard the audio of, oh my god. They're, they're amazing. Ruth's narrator, Imogen Church, takes you there. I mean, she really brings in the tension and suspense. Uh, so enamored is one of my friends with Imogen that on a recent trip to England, she bought a necklace with Imogen's name on it instead of her own. So, <laughs> so every time someone makes a comment about it, what an unusual name. It gives her a great opportunity to talk about Ruth's books. So can't beat that. But I know when I hand someone a, a book by Ruth Ware, they're going to fall in love with her just the way you can. Now on her seventh thriller, uh, Ruth has come to be known as the Agatha Christie of our age. In fact, she's even written a Miss Marple mystery. It's a story titled Miss Marple's Christmas, and it appears in a short story collection uh, written by several, um, I believe 12, thriller authors, and it's called Marple, 12 Stories, and it comes out in September, so another thing to watch out for. And why are Ruth's stories such a great read? What's that mojo that makes us want to finish her books in one read? Maybe it's her complex characters. They're lonely, clever, afraid, and sometimes psychotic. 
They are undeniably human, and you want to love them and throttle them all at the same time. Or maybe it's the settings. Ruth transports us to unusual places, like the deep woods in a kind of high-tech house in a dark, dark wood, or a corporate retreat in the French Alps like we had in One by One. Or perhaps we love her for her twisty plots. Calling back to the time of the Golden Age detective, her locked room mysteries are always more complex than they appear. She's the queen of secrets, deep, dark secrets, the kind you know will cause chaos when and if they ever get out. Her books are about messed up people doing messed up things and ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. They're unputdownable, and she lets the tension marinate to a fever pitch. Her newest novel, The It Girl, takes us to the halls of Oxford, where Hannah witnesses the murder of her socialite friend April by the hands of their dormitory porter. But 10 years later, Hannah must tackle with the possibility that he didn't do it. And if that case, who did and what did she see? Please join me in welcoming author Ruth Ware. I'm so glad you showed me where the steps were. I would have probably tried to climb up the side of the stage. I wasn't entirely sure myself. <laughs> the confidence, though. I was ready to jump up. <laughs> Okay, yep. so to begin, we had a little bit of a s summary earlier, but we do want to just ask you in your own words, can you tell the audience about your new book, The It Girl? Well, first of all, um, can I just say how amazing it is to be here and what an incredible library this is. I think I spent so much time... <laughs> In the library as a kid, if I'd had a library as amazing as this, I think I probably would have just not left. So um, <laughs> I'll probably be live, just living here for the rest of the tour. Um, but yeah, the It Girl. Um, the It Girl is divided into two timelines. And my main character, Hannah, we meet her first of all in present day Edinburgh, where she's working as a bookseller. She has this kind of... Um, I think sort of seemingly fairly idyllic life. So she's working in this lovely little independent bookshop called Tall Tales. Um, she's married to her college sweetheart, Will, and she's expecting their first baby. Um, but when we meet her, um, she's received a call from her mum saying that John Neville is dead. And this completely shakes Hannah for reasons that we don't at first understand. Um, but then we flash back to 10 years ago when Hannah was um, at Oxford University. And we discover that her best friend, April, um, was killed at university. And the murderer, John Neville, was convicted largely on Hannah's evidence. Um, so for 10 years, Hannah's been kind of trying to deal with this, trying to push the memories away. Um, and on the surface, Neville's death should be good news for her because it's closing a really painful chapter of her life. She should be able to move on, focus on her, her new baby. Um, but actually, what Neville's death forces her to face up to is the fact that she has never been completely happy about his conviction. Um, she's never been completely certain that the evidence she gave, while truthful, was completely accurate. Um, and so, yes, she's forced to reckon with the fact that she may have condemned an innocent man to die in prison and that if Neville did not kill April, then somebody else did. 
So that's the plot. <laughs> uh, don't worry, a few other things happen as well. I haven't spoiled it all. <laughs> um, you mentioned that the It Girl takes place at the University of Oxford and Edinburgh. Do you have any personal um, connection to either of those places? And is that why you chose them for the locations? Um, well, I did not go to Oxford University. I went to Manchester University, which is a completely different experience from Oxford. It's this huge... Well, it's actually three universities in one because Manchester has three universities in the town and they kind of share dorms and facilities. So there are thousands and thousands and thousands of students in Manchester and it's really easy to get lost, to find yourself, to rediscover yourself, to reinvent yourself. Um, but that didn't seem like the right place to set a murder mystery. I wanted something a little bit more claustrophobic, a little bit more enclosed. Um, and a lot of my friends went to Oxford. Um, and the thing about Oxford is, although the University of Oxford is huge, it's divided into individual colleges, um, each of which is actually quite small. So Magdalen College, for example, which is one of the most famous ones, um, only has about 300 undergraduates. And they all live on site, um, they sleep there, they do most of their tutorials there. The staff belong to the college, so all of the tutors um, live and eat there as well. Eat there, not all of them live there. The master, who's like the head, lives on site. Um, and it becomes pretty claustrophobic. You know, there's, you know everybody in your year. Um, you all socialize together, eat together, sleep together, work together, compete. Um, and that felt like an intrinsically more interesting place to, to set a murder mystery. Um, partly because just from the point of view of the plot, the colleges are walled and they have only a couple of entrances, one of which is overseen by the college porter, who obviously becomes an important character. Um, and then Edinburgh, I guess, was... I was trying to put myself in Hannah's shoes and think if I were Hannah and I had undergone this incredibly traumatic experience um, after which she has this very ambivalent relationship with the press, you know, they're doorstepping her, she's getting people turning up at her parents' house asking for interviews, she's getting cold called. Um, and a pretty horrible brush with the justice system as well. You know, she undergoes this very traumatic trial um, what would I do? And I thought, well, I would probably want to run away. And Scotland is about as far as you can go without leaving the UK. You know, Oxford's down in the south. Edinburgh, obviously, is in the north. Um, and it has its own legal system. It has a separate police force. It has a different press. Most newspapers have separate Scottish editions with completely different staff. Um, and it was kind of plausible that the Scottish system would not be as interested in what had happened to Hannah. So I thought if I was Hannah, I would go to Scotland. Um, and Edinburgh is one of my favourite cities. I have been there many times. It's beautiful. So I guess just on a sort of selfish level, I thought if I'm going to spend a year in a place in my imagination, um, I want it to be a nice place. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I can't blame you for that. <laughs> So many readers are fans of dark academia, and what makes a school such a perfect setting for a thriller? Oh, yeah, well, that's a really good question. A funny thing is that um, when I first started thinking about this book, which was um, way back at, like, it was in lockdown probably, so it was probably sort of start of 2020, um, 
I was unaware that dark academia was even a thing. Um, I'm not on, well, I am on TikTok, but only in the strictest sense that I have registered my username and never gone there again. <laughs> I do not either tick or talk. Um, <laughs> I occasionally watch things that pop up on Instagram, but that's about it. Um, so um, it was somewhat of a surprise to come out of the end of this process of writing a book and discover that I had, in fact, written a dark academia book and that these were apparently quite au courant on, uh, on TikTok. Um, so, yeah, so that was exciting uh, to be on trend for once in my life. But um, I guess I think the reason... I think there's lots of reasons why they make a great setting for a thriller. Part of it is just that, you know, old colleges and boarding schools and things are just intrinsically kind of cool, spooky places, you know. If you're my age, you probably grew up wanting to attend Hogwarts and, you know, dreaming of kind of Gothic architecture and, and you know, Oxford has that in spades. It's probably the one place where people are still expected to wear academic gown to dinner you know students have to um when they do their exams which they call collects because oxford can't use the same words as anyone else obviously <laughs> they have to wear academic dress for that the men have to wear suits and academic gowns the women have to wear like these weird little almost like those like um uh, Colonel Sanders ties, like those little black ribbons. I don't know why, but Oxford considers that to be acceptable academic dress for females. Um, so it's just, it's like, it's weird and it's arcane and it's cool. Um, but also I think the reason I wanted to write about it as a period of time in someone's life is because I guess it was Partly it was one of the most formative times of my life. I think, you know, there were two really big turning points in my life. And one was going away to university, becoming an independent person for the first time and, you know, leaving home and striking out. And the other really big <clears throat> kind of point where I had to sort of reinvent myself again was when I had my first kid which was a, an equal shock to the system in very different ways. Um, and those, so those are the two kind of experiences that bookend Hannah's existence. We meet her at university uh, where she's spreading her wings for the first time. And then we meet her again 10 years later when she's having her first baby. And I think the thing about leaving home for the first time is you are kind of you're full of excitement and courage and, you know, you're ready to take risks and spread your wings. But looking back, I think certainly I was vulnerable in ways that I didn't even realise at the time. You know, I feel like now I can deal with most things that life throws at me, touch wood. You know, I've developed like an armoury of ways to deal with difficult situations and I think I understand risky situations a lot more and I'm able to sort of read things. I don't think I had any of those tools as an 18-year-old. I was flinging myself out into the world without any real understanding of what I might encounter or how I might deal with it. And of course, that's the only way to be as a teenager. You know, you have to be fearless, otherwise you would never, you would never do all of these stupid things. Like, you know, I went to Paris when I was 20 with literally nothing but about 50 quid in my pocket and a suitcase full of clothes. I didn't have a job, I didn't have a place to stay. And I look back and I think, what was I thinking? Also, what were my parents thinking? <laughs> but, you know, thank goodness they let me do it. 
Um, and Hannah is at exactly that point in her life when she, she should be taking risks and she should be being fearless and foolish and all of those things. But she experiences something that, you know, is more horrible than I hope anybody in here will ever have to deal with. Um, and it makes her go back into her shell for the next 10 years because it's, yeah, something someone shouldn't have to deal with, certainly not at her age. Absolutely. So such a personal response and also so beautiful and still, you know, lends hope to everyone as well. I hope so. <laughs> so at the start of the book, Hannah's world is sort of turned upside down when she finds out the news that the man she thought killed her best friend is dead and that there's sort of that nagging feeling that she has that maybe that wasn't correct. I would like to know if there was any particular inspiration to that storyline where um, you, know, you have someone potentially wrongfully convicted. Well, I definitely didn't take it from any of the um, cases that are in the media at the moment. A lot of them only came up after I'd started writing the book. But I think probably the root of it for me was actually doing jury service, um, which I did probably like four or five years ago. Um, and thankfully, the case that I sat was not anywhere near as traumatic as what happens to Hannah. It was a much less serious charge. But I was surprised how deeply it affected me. <laughs> and, you know, I was, <clears throat> excuse me, I was coming home at night and I wasn't sleeping very well because I was worrying about the case. And I think what really impressed upon me was not just how my fellow jurors were affected by it. And I think everybody was really anxious to do right by all the people involved and really cognizant of the fact that everybody involved was quite damaged and probably there wasn't going to be any perfect result no matter what you know what verdict we brought home but also how very vulnerable the witnesses um, seemed to be and I suppose it just got me thinking about how I felt aged you know 30 40 something about my very small brush with the justice system in about the most cushioned way it could possibly have been, how much worse it would have been to be a witness or to be a defendant or to be someone with a much greater degree of responsibility um, and how I would have coped with that if that would have been me. And I suppose because I'm a writer and even worse, a crime writer, um, whenever I come up with a, one of those what-if situations, my imagination always takes it to the nth degree. And so for me, the most horrific version of that would be not just being involved in a very painful, very high-profile case, but having made a mistake. And so that was the situation that I put poor Hannah in. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Like you're apologizing to your character. You're like, I'm sorry I did this to you. I'm the writer, though. That's how that works. Um, <laughs> you talked a little bit about why you chose the two time periods you do in Hannah's life when she's in college and then uh, as she's on her way to becoming a new mother. I'm curious, how, in terms of writing, do you decide to balance those two? You know, I don't think it's I don't think it's a spoiler to say there are surprises along the way in your books. And in this one, you know, how do you have these two timelines and figure out which way they go to sort of drop those breadcrumbs but also keep some things back? Um, I would love to have a really sort of clever, pithy answer to this and sort of say, well, the secret is. Um, 
the truth is I pretty much make it up as I go along. And when I sort of first start thinking about a book, um, I generally know uh, who did it. I know quite a bit about the main character and I know stuff about the sort of significant secondary characters. And I usually know who did it and how and why because I think, you, as exactly as you referred to, you have to have that information in order to drop the breadcrumbs for the reader because to give the reader a fair chance of solving the mystery, you have to, to drop those clues. And unless you know the solution, you can't sort of spoon-feed the solution out. Um, so that part I always know. And then there's usually one or two or sometimes a few more scenes that I'm really looking forward to writing, um, like the kind of the cool set pieces. Um, and I think of them as a bit like, you know, if you were having like a trailer of a film, it would be like the scenes that you see in the trailer, the really kind of like awesome stuff. Um, so I've usually got a few of those in the back of my mind and I know roughly where I want them to appear in, in the plot. So I'll be like, this kind of has to happen at the end, this will happen halfway through. And then it just becomes a process of um, steering from one to the other, sort of a bit like taking a journey. Like you can see a landmark that you're trying to get to and, and sometimes you take a wrong turn and you think, wow, this is really boring. <laughs> and like, I better turn back and delete this bit and take the, everyone via a more interesting route because we're all going to be falling asleep otherwise. Um, but also, um, in terms of specifically the two timelines which you're asking about, that I play very much by ear. I mean, obviously the stuff that I knew, um, there's a, this isn't a spoiler, but there's like a fun scene where they all play strip poker and that was in my head from quite early on and that had to be a past scene. And then there's some stuff at the end which is very dramatic, which I was looking forward to writing and that is a spoiler. Um, and that obviously had to be in the present timeline. So stuff like that kind of dictates which timeline. But in terms of swapping back and forth, I just write until I get bored with one. And that's the, and then uh, that's the joy of writing. People often ask, like, you know, how do you weave it all together as if I have some grand plan in my head? But the, um, the great secret to having a two-timeline novel is that if things are a bit boring in one timeline, you can make something cool happen in the other timeline and pep everyone up again. So you're like, okay, this is, this is a really tedious bit of detecting. We'll have somebody strangled. And, you know, so it's like... <laughs> a, a lot of it is just... I guess it's like cooking in a way, you know? Like you taste something, you're like, oh, it's a bit, bit bland. Maybe some salt, maybe some red wine vinegar, you know, whatever it needs. <laughs> Now you said you might, you wish you had a good answer for that, but that was a fantastic answer. <laughs> I love to hear that it's just mm, kind of comes together at the end. <laughs> so Hannah fills a role that is near and dear to your heart. She is working in a bookshop. She is all about the books. Can you tell us a bit about your personal experience in the literary world even before you were an author? Yeah, so Hannah uh, gets to be a bookseller and I think the reason why I made her a bookseller um, was partly it was a bit of a love letter to all the booksellers um, who've been so generous about my books and have, you know, recommended them to people. But mainly 
she just goes through such a lot. I wanted her to have like one good thing in her life. And uh, I, you know, I screwed up her college days. I screwed up her pregnancy, her first babe. So I was like, okay, she's got to have a nice job. So the nice job is that she gets to work in a lovely independent bookseller with a really nice boss um, and a great coworker. So she has that in her life. And, you know, I think on a more serious note, books have been such a refuge for me throughout my life. Um, and whenever things get tough, I find myself escaping into my favourite books. So I wanted to give that to Hannah. I wanted to give her somewhere that she could escape to. Um, and fortunately, because, as previously mentioned, I did not go to Oxford University, I had to do quite a bit of research for that part of the plot. So there was a lot of phoning up friends, a lot of trying to find out really boring minutiae like how how do they give out marks in exams you know how often do assessments take place could you ever have a tutorial with one person you know all this kind of really tedious stuff that makes no difference to the plot but has to be right um fortunately I had worked as a bookseller for many years before, um, not in a sort of super professional capacity, but I was basically like the Saturday girl in a bookshop um, and for years through school and university. Um, so that was something that I felt fairly confident about blagging my way through. I was like, I can do this bit without too much research. So it was partly a little bit of laziness. <laughs> A lot of great empathy, give your character some love, but also harken back to the good old days. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so speaking of the good old days, in the book, Hannah is extremely different from her roommate and best friend, April. Um, she's described, April's described as the ultimate it girl. She's rich and beautiful, and sometimes she can be quite mean um, to those around her, but they sort of gravitate towards her anyways. I'm wondering if there were any... Um, inspiration drawn from it girls in your college days um, or if you think that concept has changed at all oh it's a good question um <clears throat> I don't I mean I didn't know any it girls Manchester wasn't really the university for that and when I was there it was kind of the tail end of sort of Madchester and it was all you know oasis and the stone roses so we weren't really kind of prancing around in high heels it was very much grunge and nirvana and sort of uh, that era so, uh, <clears throat> no, it definitely wasn't drawn from real life. But I think um, the concept of lots of people from very different backgrounds meeting at university was intrinsically quite interesting to me because I think throughout our school days, we often meet people very like us because, you know, they're all from the same neighbourhood. If you're at a private school, you only meet people from a certain income bracket. If you're at a state school, likewise, you probably meet people who are sort of, you know, fairly like you. And then suddenly, if you go to a university um, that's sort of stratified by intelligence instead of income and geography, you get this wildly different mix of people that you would never have encountered. And I vividly remember a conversation with a friend who went to Oxford say, saying, there's someone who's the daughter of an actual countess on my landing. <laughs> and she was like, you know, I sort of know in theory that countesses exist, but like I never expected to meet one. It's sort of like being roomed next to a fairy or something. So... <laughs> I think I wanted to kind of capture that sort of 
shock. You know, Hannah's from a really regular middle-class background. Her dad's a builder. Her mum's a teacher. You know, she just she's sort of similar background to me, really. Whereas April is from this kind of incredibly wealthy, glitzy background. Um, but also, I suppose, one of the big themes of the novel is how women and girls in particular are treated in the media. And it's something that Hannah has had to deal with as the survivor of this um, experience. But also part of what I was writing about is the way the media loves to box up victims of tragedies. And often we talk about them either in terms of you know, how perfect they are, how popular, how academically gifted, how beautiful, how angelic, or, on the other hand, how maybe, not that they, what happened, they deserved what happened to them, but how they made mistakes, you know, how perhaps if she hadn't walked that route home, or if she hadn't gone to this party, or if she hadn't drunk a bit too much, so we, we love to sort of compartmentalise people like April. Um, and I guess in writing her, I deliberately wanted to write someone who didn't fit into those boxes and is very difficult to categorise. And I wanted to write about the way often, as a society, we get quite annoyed when people don't fit our stereotypes and preconceptions. It's almost like they're letting us down by not being a certain type of person. And I think the other group of people who we really see this with is the It Girls, you know, the Paris Hiltons, the Britney Spears, the Tara Palmer Tompkinsons. We kind of idolise them and want them to be role models. And then when they're not, we get absolutely furious, as if they owed us a certain standard of behaviour simply because they're popular. So I think April kind of sums up a lot of my unease and discomfort about the way particularly young women and younger girls are talked about in the media. I absolutely love that answer. That's so good. Um, how you said April is not, you know, inspired by anyone you knew, but did you draw on any of your own college experiences when you were writing the Oxford scenes? And if you did, was it sort of challenging to put yourself back into the shoes of your younger self? Oh, I definitely, you know, I think a lot of Hannah's experience of walking out into the world and meeting completely different people and having that sort of heady sense of possibility, all of that is very much directly drawn from my own sort of memories of college days. And I think um, I'm often asked, you know, is it difficult to write about young women or, or kids? Um, I don't find it hard at all to throw myself back um, to different periods of my life. And to, in fact, most of the time, I think if, you know, if I was hit by a bus and somebody asked me what age I was, I would probably say 22. So I'm probably just delusional about the fact that I'm now in my 40s. Um, so no, I don't, I don't find it difficult to remember what it was like to be that age. Um, and, you know, the excitement of having a crush on someone for the first time and do they like you back and that kind of agony of wanting to say something but not wanting, you know, all of that was just really fun to, to kind of remember. Um, but, of course, the big thing which ha has changed between my college days and the 
period that I was writing about in the book, which is, um, so I went to university at, um, at around the turn of 2000, whereas the college part of the It Girl is set in about 2010, although it's never actually specified because I didn't want to have to deal with COVID in the present day section. So the dates are sort of glossed over. It's sort of like maybe it was 10 years ago, maybe it was a little bit more or less. Um, but it's basically, it's supposed to be around um, 2010, um, was social media. And when I was at university, we didn't even have mobile phones, let alone smartphones. Um, so I was very mindful of the fact that that is something that college kids of today and of April and Hannah's generation have to deal with. Um, and the interesting thing about 2010 specifically is that October 2010 was when Instagram first came out. And I can remember using Twitter before you could post photos and you had to use third-party photo sharing things and say, here's a link to a cool photo I took. It could be a virus, but please click it. <laughs> and, you know, so sometimes people wouldn't, understandably. Um, and... Or, you know, the idea that you could take a photo on your mobile phone there and then and post it to social media from your phone without having to, you know, sit down at your desktop, just revolutionary. Um, and I am simultaneously so envious and so grateful that I did not have to deal with that. There would be hideous photos of me out there, or the more hideous photos out there of me on the internet than there are now. So, um, yeah, so thank God... Um, there was not Instagram when I was at university. Um, but that was a fun thing to write about because I, I was able to sort of make April a kind of proto-influencer, which was quite cool, to look at the kind of beginnings of that era. Oh, the, the old days of not being able to post photos anywhere. I remember getting tweets sent to you as text messages if you wanted it sent to your just standard old dumb phone. Yeah. <laughs> Now, to kind of harken back a little bit to Emma's question, so we get the sense that April's murder is kind of so popularized, it's garnered so much attention because she is this attractive and affluent person, while her suspected murderer is, you know, awkward, he's unconnected, and he just kind of seemed the likely culprit. Um, did you aim to examine how society often assigns these roles? About based on outward appearances while you were writing? Yes. <laughs> okay, next question. <laughs> no, I mean, the longer answer is yes, definitely. You know, a lot of the book is about appearances and about how we react to people and the assumptions that we make about people based upon how they look or how they act. And um, I suppose as well, I was sort of tried, not writing about, but kind of writing around the way that exactly as you said certain types of victims are of much more interest to society than others and you know we see this all the time not just in the press but with podcasts and uh, true crime stuff um there is there's a certain type of victim who provokes a particular societal obsession and april fits that to a t she's young she's white she's beautiful she's affluent and the press just descend. So, yeah, absolutely, that was, I suppose that was a point I was sort of nibbling around the edges of, yeah. And the flip side to that with, you know, the, the convicted killer, so to say, 
being so awkward. What was what was that motivation like? What was making him kind of othered? Um, I guess I just I I suppose it it was a sort of discomfort from having sat in a courtroom and watched different types of people giving evidence. It's the discomfort with the way some people come across really well and really plausibly and other people just come across so, so badly and they look weird or, you know, they've got body odour or they don't... They're just, you know... John Neville is... Like, he's creepy. He just is creep, And he's he behaves in ways to Hannah which are not acceptable and he is slightly stalkerish and slightly bullying. But it's all right on the cusp of what Hannah feels able to talk about. And... Both sides of this are things that society is not good at dealing with. Hannah, is, Hannah doesn't feel enabled to speak up about what Neville is doing. She feels very uncomfortable. She's a very polite person, so she tries to sort of deal with this in societally acceptable ways by just avoiding him, not making a fuss. Um, but equally, John Neville is an awkward, creepy person, but that doesn't mean he's, mean he's a murderer. <laughs> and when he encounters the court system, all of those aspects of his personality work against him. And I, I don't think that's something that the justice system deals with very well. Um, yeah. Absolutely. They make a perfect true crime pair, the really perfect victim and the easy to kind of prosecute Absolutely. Bad guy. Yeah. yeah. So for time, I'm gonna go rogue on my co-hosts, and uh, I'm gonna skip ahead to this question uh, because I know we want to have some time for audience questions. This is the first time you've been out doing events in quite a while. Um, how does that feel after that sort of forced hiatus from author events and seeing readers in person? Oh, it feels amazing. A bit scary, too, I have to say. This is probably the largest number of people I've talked to for the past two years all together. So, <laughs> yeah, but no, it feels, re it feels really nice to, to, to be back on, back on the horse. Um, but I think, you know, one, not much good stuff came out of COVID, um, but one really nice thing that did um, happen was I think was how amazing bookshops were at kind of pivoting and turning to virtual events and opening it up to a much wider audience and I got so many lovely messages from people who said I've never been able to attend uh, an author event you know I'm housebound or I don't live in a part of the country where authors typically come um, so that was lovely and I'm, I'm really pleased that we seem to have got into a sort of hybrid model now you know I did a virtual event earlier today and now I'm doing an in-person one so for me it's kind of it's the best of both worlds really we're very excited to have you in Cleveland Ohio we're glad it made the tour stop <laughs> yes agreed um so I think we might want to get some questions from the audience so if we can bring out the house lights you can see every, it's like, we look can't, at you beautiful people, I know. we can we see, can't you. see you. <laughs> we can see a bunch of our coworkers. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, yeah, there's so many people. We've coming. got one right up front here. You go right ahead. Yeah, how long did it take you from start to finish to write your book? Well, this one was a bit atypical. Normally I write pretty much a book a year. Um, 
And I'd got myself into quite a nice rhythm where I would start writing in the autumn when my kids go back to school. Um, and then I would write until um, sort of about June, July, which is when our kids break up for the summer. Um, and then I would deliver to my editor. Um, they would edit it over the summer. I would do the edits in the autumn and then I would start the whole process again after Christmas. So it was sort of this quite nice annual thing. Um, and then, of course, COVID came along um, and all of our schools shut and my kids were homeschooled. And my husband is a virologist um, who works for um, PHE, which is our version of the CDC. Uh, so I basically didn't see him for about a year. He was like just shut in his office on endless Zoom calls. Um, and I'd occasionally sort of hear these faintly worrying things coming through the doors. So basically, I was in charge of my kids' education, which it turns out I am appallingly bad at. So <laughs> we should all be very grateful that I didn't become a teacher. I did teach English as a foreign language for a while, but um, yeah, the, I, I'm, I'm endlessly grateful that I am not a school teacher and did not have to do that for longer than I did. Um, so basically, I just didn't write for a, for a year, um, which was pretty tough. I never realised until that point how much I rely on writing as a form of, I guess mental health care in a way like it's you know it's a, how I process all of my anxieties it's how I figure out my creativity it's how I make sense of the world and for a year I just um, I did write a Miss Marple story that was all I did but it was very short um, so that that felt like a real kind of tough um, period but the flip side of it was that when we got to the end of all of this I found I had a novel pretty much fully formed in the back of my head. And I wrote The It Girl more quickly than I'd written any novel since In a Dark Dark Wood. Um, so I think I probably wrote it in about three or four months. Um, and it was just like dictating a story that was already back there. So yeah, it was a year of pain for three months of, three months of gain. <laughs> but yeah, normally it's more regular than that. And we'll go right behind. So when developing characters, are you using uh, people from pop culture, people you know? How do you come up with your characters? Um, really good question. People often phrase it less delicately by saying, uh, do you put your friends in your books? And I say, <laughs> I, I do not, because I, I treasure my friends very much, and I don't think they would stay friends with me very long if I uh, dissected them up and put them in my novels. I wouldn't be friends with anybody who might be putting my quirks in a, in a book. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't do that to some. So, no, I don't, I don't put people in my books wholesale. I do very occasionally borrow... Um, kind of little quirks or mannerisms or sayings um, that are too good to pass up um, from real people. Um, more often, I would say it's um, strangers or uh, characters in the media. You know, April, I think, is a combination of lots of beautiful, entitled, um, slightly careless, maybe slightly selfish people that we see in the media all the time. Um, Hannah is a more straightforward character and she was formed much more out of the fact that obviously for the plot to work, which is a big part of writing a book, you sort of have to 
retro-engineer a certain amount of things, she needed to be the kind of person who would not let this go. You know, if April thought that she had mistakenly convicted someone who died in prison, she'd shrug and move on and say, well, sucks to be him. But, you know, <laughs> Hannah is the kind of person who... And I guess this is something I share with her because most of my characters have an element of me in them. If I thought... I had given evidence that resulted in the wrong person being convicted, I would never sleep again until I'd found out whether that was the case or not. And I think if I had made a mistake and knew I'd made a mistake, I would know that I had to either try to put it right or to live with that, and I would be able to move on. But the uncertainty, I think, would kill me. And so Hannah is someone very much in that mould. She's someone who cares about other people intensely. She wants to do the right thing. She's responsible. She's dogged. She is the person. So that, that element of her character drove the whole book, that she has to find out the truth. Um, and in some ways, I suppose it's a matter of... you plot characters in opposition to each other. So Hannah and April are very much polar opposites. And I think that's often true with friends. You know, you you seek out friends who have qualities that you admire, and often they are qualities that you admire because they're qualities that you are aware that you lack. And, you know, I know that I look for friends who are kind of more spontaneous than I am or more outgoing or more funny or braver or more rude. Um, and that's, you know, that because those are all, all characteristics that I think I, I need in my life. Um, and that's definitely what Hannah does. I think that's why she's attracted to April, even though April has a ton of unlikable qualities as well the good qualities that she has are ones that Hannah admires and wishes that she had so the two kind of form in opposition to each other and, and so did lots of the secondary characters you know there's the there's the quiet self-effacing one there's the golden boy who's you know incredibly beautiful but also kind-hearted who is who Hannah marries I gave her a good husband as well as although you know he has a as the novel moves on you might um, and then, you know, there's the clever, intelligent friend, and then there's the um, there's Ryan, who's like this rugby player of the group. So, yeah, it's sort of a, partly a kind of box-ticking thing. <laughs> Got to tick the boxes. <laughs> so I'm going to move back a little bit. Let's see. I see you in, like, the middle right there. Yep. I love this question. This is a question I love to ask, too. Uh, I usually just phrase it, who would play her? But uh, if you were to look at your books, do you have one that you feel would adapt really well, rather, rather in film or in television? And who would play her? Who's going who's gonna to be your cast? Such a good question. Um, so to answer the first part of your question first, um, there are some of my books which I think are essentially unfilmable. Um, and I think The Death of Mrs. Westaway is probably one. Um, I think The Turn of the Key would be pretty hard to film. Um, on the other hand, I think there are some that would be very cool. I would love to see The Woman in Cabin 10 filmed, just because I think all the scenes with the boats and, you know, there would be a crashing wet. That would be really dramatic and cool. Um, I was sort of hopeful over... COVID because I thought well it'd be the perfect COVID safe production you know it's a very closed scene you, you wouldn't have to have extras or anything but sadly nobody had the same uh, they've all pretty much all of them um, under option 
Um, but turns out Hollywood is even slower than publishing, so that's, uh, yeah. Um, but actually, and this is a really annoying answer, um, the book that I'm writing now, I think, is probably the most filmic out of all of the books I've written. Um, and it's much more of a thriller than... It's still got a whodunit element to it, but it's it's a more classic kind of... Um, it's a little bit like a gender-flipped fugitive. Um, and I think that would make an awesome movie with lots of chase scenes, lots of action. Um, but, yeah, you won't get that until 2023. Sorry. <laughs> and if we were to just think of Hannah and April, do you have any specific... Oh, who would I cast? Well, yeah. the reason I dodged that part is because I'm <laughs> unbelievably bad with remembering celebrities. Um, so I'm always like, oh, you know, the one who was in that thing who was... Um, I guess Hannah I see as someone um, kind of quite vulnerable and sort of maybe... Um, here, I'm going to show the fact that I don't know any names. Um, the girl who starred in uh, Normal People and is in that, in Crawdads, Daisy someone or other. Daisy Ridley, is that? Daisy no. Edgar Jones. That's the go. one. See, I don't know names there you go. either. We're all as clueless as each other. Um April would have to be someone I don't know who's really who's really blonde and stunningly beautiful. I feel a Florence Pugh. Uh, oh, she would be great. Yeah, I do. yeah she's I Black Widow, isn't Sydney she? Sydney Sweeney. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sydney Sweeney. The, the kids uh. like her, I think, and Euphoria. <laughs> I don't. She'd do well on TikTok. I think is that what she's you're like saying? on TikTok. Oh, I haven't Sydney watched Sweeney. Euphoria. I think it's too upsetting for me. So. Oh, she would be good. She would be good. Yeah, I think I know. Yes. I think we can get two more questions in. So let's see. Oh, I feel bad. I've been picking all of them right there. I love the bright colors. So when you, as a reader, are going through a book similar to your own, are you just letting it come as it does, see the solutions as they fall into place for you, or are you trying to Poirot it all the way through and figure it out? Um... Okay, I'm going to give a two-part answer to this, and the second part I'm going to duck because I think everyone's going to... Um, so I do very much try and figure it out. I love getting there before the author. Um, I think a lot of readers feel a bit annoyed if they guess the solution, whereas I just feel how incredibly intelligent I was to... <laughs> And also I think, and I'm not including myself in this group, but I think crime readers are incredibly dedicated to the genre. They often really sophisticated. They've read a lot of crime. So it is very, very difficult to fool everybody all of the time. Um, so I don't feel bad when people tell me that they've, you know, they've figured out this. Well, obviously I would like to fool them, but... Um, but, you know, I, don't, I, I feel like I've done my best to, to pull the wool over their eyes. But, no, when I read, I, I very much try to solve it, and I feel very pleased with myself if I do figure it out. Um, but the confession that I is the second part is um, I sometimes flick to the end. <laughs> the collective outrage. I see. I don't really believe in spoilers. They did. I, I, there was this academic study about whether spoilers actually spoiled your enjoyment of a book, and they discovered that people who knew the outcome of a story, even if it was one that relied on the twist, 
rated the story more highly than people who didn't know it because they were able to appreciate how clever the author was being in pulling the wool over their eyes and all the so uh, so yeah so I do sometimes especially if I'm anxious and I'll do this in film and TV as well if there's a character that I'm particularly concerned about I will wikipedia the plot <laughs> I knew that as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, fully relate to that. <laughs> so our last question, just all the way up there. Yep, that's you. Who's your inspiration? Who are you reading? Oh, so, um, I mean, contemporary-wise, I love just a bunch of, uh, there's so many amazing sort of women writing psychological thrillers out there. It raises the bar for the rest of us, which is, I think, good. It makes us bring our A game. Um, even though I do have to avoid um, some of my contemporaries while I'm first drafting, because if I read a book that is too good, it just depresses me. Um, <laughs> there's always a, a, I was going to say a moment, but it's actually often quite a long period where the book is on your computer and it's a very ugly duckling and it's not finished and it's not, it's sort of past the honeymoon stage where you're like, this book's going to win the Pulitzer, it's so amazing. But it's not yet been edited and made to look sort of pretty and, and hang together. Um, and that's always when I feel the most depressed about the book because it's gone too far for me to just jack it in and start again. But it's not yet in a state that I would want anyone else to see. So if I read, you know, someone who's too good at that point, I just would probably give up altogether. Um, so people that I love, Erin um, uh, Kelly, um, Claire McIntosh, uh, Lisa Jewell, Megan Abbott. I have, like, people I come back to again and again. Riley Sager, just so we're not only mentioning women, he's great. Um, but more kind of inspiration-wise in terms of classics, I guess I love Daphne du Maurier. Um, Christy, I think, plots amazingly. She's the person that I kind of turn to for plotting lessons. But Daphne du Maurier, I think, does character and relationships like nobody else. And I, I think she invented the psychological thriller, personally. She's not often shelved in the psychological thriller she's often put in romances which frankly just proves to me that whoever's shelving hasn't actually read the book because I would not want to be in any of the relationships in her novels uh, apart from Frenchman's Creek he's uh, fantastic um, but yeah I, I think she is the person who I kind of take most inspiration from in terms of how she balances the tension in her books and builds character uh, so yeah well, thank you, Ruth. Thank you so much for giving us the time today. And thank you all so much for showing up. And thank you. Amazing questions. Yes, and thank you to Max Bax, of course, for providing books for all of you to buy and, and have signed by Ruth. So thank you, everybody. Um, and hope you have a good evening. Yeah, and of course, happy reading. And happy reading. <laughs> Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, 
well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.